0: Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artisan food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious.
1: A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. It's my goal to satiate your appetite. And every Sunday, you'll find nationally recognized celebrity chefs food artisans, authors, experts, and visionaries who love food, travel, and living the best life all here. Every food topic is on the table on this show with recipe inspiration, party planning, wine pairings, cooking techniques, and much more shared all throughout the hour. So if you love to cook or love to eat, I hope you'll stay tuned because it is my goal to fill your plate. I am always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com, and I hope that you'll join me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. So let's get to eating, shall we? On this show, I share simple tricks that will change the way you cook. And to welcome in fall, I thought I would share a masterclass in how to make spaghetti carbonara. Traditional spaghetti alla carbonara is divinely indulgent, don't you think? And it's the perfect fall weather comfort food. It's an Italian pasta dish that was originally based on eggs pecorino romano, and guanciale. And guanciale is, of course, that Italian cured meat that is getting lots of attention today, widely available. It's from the pork jowl or the cheeks, and it's lusciously delicious and smoked, and it has a really wonderful toothsome bite. The Dish itself spaghetti alla carbonara by the way was said to have been created in the middle of the 20th century and recipes vary but cheese egg yolks some sort of cured fatty pork and black pepper are the essential basics now you can substitute a combination of cheeses but traditionally of course Pecorino Romano. You could add in Parmesan or a blend of the two if you like. Some chefs use whole eggs, um, but a good dose of freshly cracked black pepper is necessary. And the pork, no matter which you choose, could be guanciale or applewood smoked bacon, or even you could throw a spin here and use pancetta or even serrano for a Spanish twist if you like. The meat is always cooked until crisp and then the hot pasta is added to the pan to finish the cooking and it cooks the eggs and the cheese with the butter and olive oil in a way, away from the heat that avoids making scrambled eggs with noodles, but rather this creamy, luscious, delicious sauce. And it's really simple to prepare. So it's a great go-to weeknight meal and certainly one that will comfort or feed your soul. Now, like many recipes. The origins of spaghetti alla carbonara are very unclear. It is actually said that the name was derived from carbonaro, the Italian word for charcoal burner. Some believe that the dish was first made as a hearty meal for Italian charcoal workers, um, which gave rise to the term coal miners, spaghetti, which is actually used to refer to spaghetti carbonara in many parts of the U.S., Now, the majority of my chef friends will agree, I know, that true carbonara has guanciale and not bacon or pancetta, although I really believe that both make uh, fine substitutions, and I believe in alternatives. I think that you should add in what you like and make it signature to you. Some say cream has a place in carbonara, uh, for that I disagree. I'm all for indulgence, but if the dish is made properly, spaghetti carbonara doesn't need the cream. Now to be a non-conformist, I love to add a twist and you know that about me if you've listened to this show for some time and for that I thank you. I like to add caramelized onions to my spaghetti carbonara. I also like to add just a hint of lemon zest to the dish because it it brightens the pasta up at the very end. And then I often finish with a sprinkling of freshly chopped parsley. Now, for a wine pairing that will definitely please the palate, I actually recommend a German Riesling. And you might ask, why a Riesling? Well, the lemon zest in the dish adds this sort of beautiful brightness and the sweetness of the wine offsets it, brings out the saltiness of the bacon and cuts through the richness of the creamy sauce. Now you could go red and I would say a berry rich Syrah, especially with fall here would be just beautiful. I'd have to ask my Uh, wine guru husband on that one. He might disagree. Um, I think that if you're leaving out the lemon zest and you're uh, preferring to go white over red, he would probably go for a food-friendly Pinot Grigio from Italy. Uh, Of course, an Italian dish with an Italian wine, the perfect pairing. Now, the key to great spaghetti carbonara, like any good masterful method, is the quality of the ingredients. And this really applies to most things that are made simply with just a few necessities. You need to buy the best quality that you can afford, like really good cheese that you hand grate makes a difference. And then grasp the technique. And very simply, you'll have mastered the art of this scrumptious Italian tradition. So here's how I make my best spaghetti carbonara. I actually like applewood smoked bacon as a substitute to guanciale. It's readily available and easily accessible. And I cut it into one-inch pieces because it cooks down, of course. And I cook my bacon in a heavy skillet for spaghetti carbonara. And I add a little olive oil to to start... Which um, seems counterintuitive, maybe, but I was taught by a great chef that a little fat in the pan actually encourages the fat in the bacon to render quicker. Now, once the fat has rendered, I add uh, half uh, or so of a sweet yellow onion that's been minced or finely diced. And I cook slowly in the bacon fat. While the onion caramelizes, the bacon turns crisp and it takes about 10 minutes or so. And then as Julia Child always said, a little wine for the pot, a little wine for me, right? So you've opened that bottle of Pinot Grigio and you splash in a little bit of wine to the caramelized onions and the bacon and you reduce it just a little bit. Then I throw in my pasta, a good uh, pound of spaghetti And in a separate bowl, I whisk together the eggs and the Parmigiano-Reggiano or the Romano-Parmesan mix, if you prefer, and you set it aside. You season it, by the way, with just a little bit of salt because the cheese tends to lend itself to the salty side and lots of freshly ground pepper, as I mentioned. Then the secret here is to take the drained pasta – And add a few tablespoons of the pasta cooking water to the egg mixture. And the heat will actually slowly cook the eggs, but you want to mix and work quickly to prevent the eggs from scrambling. Then I add in my bacon, caramelized onions, reduced white wine. Then I throw in the cooked pasta, maybe some more freshly cracked black pepper, a little bit of that lemon zest if you like. Toss well and serve immediately. And let me tell you, it is no doubt a fabulous feast. I would love to know how your spaghetti carbonara turns out. So please email me, jamie at chefjamie.com. I'll gladly send you the recipe as well, or you can find it at chefjamie.com. Okay it's time for food news. That's news you can use. And every week I try to bring you something insightful in the food world. Well, this week is a new product find. There's this uh, genius gentleman who is creating wine products whom I met at the Chicago Houseware Show uh, a year or so ago now. And his company is called Epare, E-P-A-R-E. And he has come out with a wine aerator that enhances the flavor of a bottle of wine just by releasing its natural bouquet. Now, you've seen a lot of aerators, of course, one that you pour through, pour over, some that are electric. But this one's really ingenious. You see, this gentleman from Eparais, he created a um, a double-walled champagne glass that keeps your sparkling cold, and for that, we love him. Well, this new pocket wine aerator from Eparais actually fits in your pocket. Yes, it's really cool, actually. And unlike a traditional decanter, which takes, you know, often a lot of time to make an effect, in just 15 seconds, you can aerate your glass of wine. It has three different settings so that you can customize it, white uh, white wine, red wine, and port. And it does, it fits into your jacket pocket or your purse so you can take it on the go Uh, to just about anywhere, and you can be a wine hero. And for that, that is food news that you can use, right? You can learn more online. It it is the EPARE, E-P-A-R-E, Pocket Wine Aerator. And please don't touch your dial because there's lots more delicious conversation coming up. We are dishing up next with the woman that spiralizes everything. Yes, she is Ali Maffucci, and you are about to get inspiralized. Plus, we're dishing on the rye revolution with the rye baker, Stanley Ginsberg. And before the end of the hour, we're talking tailgating for the start of football season. Dana Falk will be here. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, and I love to share my passion for food. Please stay tuned, there's more of it right after this. Creative cooking is the best kind. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio. You are about to get spiralized, to coin her phrase. I always love when Allie Mafucci stops by. She is a New York Times best-selling author two times in a row now because the spiralizer the kitchen tool that turns your fruit and vegetables into noodles has no doubt revolutionized our cooking it has helped home cooks everywhere turn high carb dishes into clean nutritious meals and we have Allie to thank Ali Mufuchi is the undisputed leader of the spiralizing movement, and she believes that you can inspiralize everything, every meal from pasta to rice and more. And her new cookbook release, which was just named a New York Times bestseller, a second in the series, is called Inspiralize Everything. From apples to zucchini, it is an encyclopedia of spiralizing, and with fall here, we are no doubt elevating your spiralizing. I am so glad to have you back, Allie. Hi there. Hi, thank you so
2: much for having (laughs) me back on the show. Yeah,
1: congratulations. This was a very highly anticipated follow-up cookbook, um, and I I think you did a beautiful job.
2: Uh, Thank you very much. I'm always challenged with the task of developing more spiralized recipes, and um, it's very exciting to think of new and inventive ways to use the spiralizer. So I'm happy to have released this book, and so even happier that it became another
1: bestseller. Yeah, congratulations. Um, go to the uh, back to the basics for just a moment. I know you have an Inspiralizer, which you offer. It's your Spiralizer. Um, but there are different choices out on the market. Which one should we use? Of course, yours first. But give us the alternatives, please.
2: Like you said, a Spiralizer turns veggies and fruits uh, into noodles. And there are Basically, two kinds of spiralizers. There is a small handheld spiralizer, which is used really only with vegetables like zucchini, carrot, and cucumber. It's small, and you can't really shove a big veggie like uh, butternut squash into there. So, if you are someone who is new to spiralizing and isn't sure they want to invest the money into a full size spiralizer, then that's a great starting point. But I always tell people once they start spiralizing with that small one they're going to want to upgrade right away Um, and speaking of upgrading the countertop spiralizers is the next step up so from we have handheld and then countertop and my spiralizer which is called the in spiralizer is a countertop spiralizer and that those types of spiralizers allow you to spiralize all types of vegetables and fruits
1: and especially the harder veggies like the butternut squash we're about to talk about the sweet potatoes the celery act you can use a handheld spiralizer for the softer vegetables and fruits right but you need a a a good strong spiralizer for the i would say fall you know more winter focused seasonal items
2: yes exactly so those those root veggies that you get in the fall time that are so great like those like we said, the butternut squash and the sweet potato and the celery root, you need really good, firm leverage. So, the countertop spiralizers offer more of that leverage because the handheld ones, you're actually cranking the actual vegetable yourself, and it can be really taxing on your wrist if you try to do anything beyond a soft veggie like a zucchini.
1: Yeah, really smart point. Okay, so we take a beautiful green apple and we attach it to our countertop spiralizer because you have wonderful recipes. And I love the idea of spiralizing an apple as a cocktail garnish, like your ginger pear and apple sangria.
2: Yes, thank you. (laughs) I'm a big fan of sangria. And I think that spiralizing can be incorporated into every aspect of your eating schedule including cocktails which is one of my favorites
1: it's a very sweet photo congratulations on your recent wedding
2: thank you I love that
1: the hubby is holding the glass Um, okay let's talk butternut squash for a minute because every recipe I want to make I want to make butternut squash ravioli with sage (laughs) and toasted pine nuts I want to make pear pomegranate and roast turkey salad at Thanksgiving with the leftovers, and I love the the vibrancy of the color.
2: Yes, butternut squash has just such. It's such a versatile spiralized veggie, and i I love its inherent sweetness. So when you especially roast the butternut squash noodles, they become sweet and they just their flavor really is more robust. And mm. because of course butternut squash is very popular in the fall and winter, I knew I had to make a healthy Thanksgiving leftover recipe. So that or pomegranate, and roast turkey salad is just one of those perfect throw together meals that you can enjoy with your family while nice. keeping it healthy.
1: Really smart. Do you eat any carbs?
2: <laughs> I do, <laughs> and I mean vegetables have carbs in them. But um, I, to be honest, I since I started and spiralized my blog and I've written these cookbooks, I've never cooked pasta or real rice at home. Everything has been spiralized. When I go out mm. to restaurants, and I talk about this in my book, when I go to restaurants, of course, I order real spaghetti and real pasta and raviolis and all that good stuff because I consider it my market research. (laughs) Well, of course.
1: Right. I call that research and development as well. That's a great excuse. But (laughs) I think it's amazing that your movement has taken off as it has. And I really appreciate that you're introducing new ideas. Very specifically, Mm -hmm. celery act. I grew up, my mom put celery root in good old fashioned uh, Jewish chicken soup. And celery root was really not more than that to me. Then I started making a celery root salad as a garnish, like to a traditional crab cake. And I started realizing the beauty of celery yak. I never thought to put it in my spiralizer, though.
2: Yes. Actually, celery yak is one of the easiest veggies to spiralize after you peel it. I mean, I think people can get a little intimidated by it because it does have like a knobby, hairy, extra skin on, on the funky, outside. It's funky, Yes. <laughs> It is, but then it's honestly really easy to spiralize, and it comes in the perfect size to spiralize the medium to large size veggie. Um, one of my, again, favorite recipes, I'm sure I'm going to say that a lot, uh, is my Celery Act Spaghetti with Vegetarian Meatballs. I mean, the meatballs are so delicious. They have the perfect consistency. They're soft on the inside, and they get a little crispy on the outside, but they're made of you know real whole vegetable ingredients, and this, mm. I'm saying this when you look at the photo in the book and you taste it, you will not realize that you're eating spiralized vegetables. You'll think it's actual spaghetti.
1: Fabulous. And then leave us with your best sweet potato in spiralized inspiration, please. <laughs> my best
2: sweet potato. Oh, my gosh. Sweet potatoes are my favorite vegetables to spiralize during the fall and wintertime. They just have that great sweetness. And they're just, honestly, they're readily, they're readily available all year long. Um, I would say my favorite one It's hard to say. I love, I'm not a big meat eater, but when I have meat, I want it to be really decadent. And Mm. I would say my braised short ribs over sweet potato pasta. It's Mm. a few simple ingredients. It creates the perfectly cooked short ribs, and they fall right off the bone. They're so delicious. And the sweet potatoes, with their sweetness, just complement it so nicely. And, again, it doesn't take too many ingredients. It's just a slow-cooked meal that is, you know, great for entertaining. It's great for date night. I really love that one.
1: I'd love to come for dinner, thank you.
2: You're, well, you're more than welcome.
1: You have an open invitation. <laughs> well, thank you. I certainly appreciate that. She is revolutionizing healthy cooking with her second in a row New York Times best selling cookbook just released called Inspiralize Everything. For that gadget in the kitchen, the spiralizer that you love from the creator of the wildly popular blog and the author of the runaway best selling cookbook Inspiralize, there is a new release and you don't want to miss it. Once again, Inspiralize Everything. Everything is written by Ali Mifucci, and you can follow her spiralized adventures. Uh, uh, at Inspiralized on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and more and then you can learn more about the book release and how to get it at Inspiralized.com Once again, congratulations Allie you're welcome here anytime as you come up with new ideas to Inspiralize everything.
2: Thank you so much for having me on the show again and I mm-hmm. hope to come back with another bestseller next year. Yes, we'll <laughs>
1: plan for it for sure. As the delicious conversation continues the best cooks listen here Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio will be right back Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio every Sunday going way beyond mere eating and drinking. I'm on a mission to find the most emerging culinary trends, and you are about to get an education on rye. Stanley Ginsburg is the author of the award-winning book, Inside the Jewish Bakery. He is also the founder of nybakers.com, where you can buy a wide range of rye flowers. Why should you buy rye, you ask? because rye is experiencing a revolution. And Stanley is honoring the unruly weed, as he calls it, in his new book release entitled The Rye Baker, classic breads from Europe and America. And the book is really an extraordinary exploration. Stanley, I'm grateful that you've stopped by. Hi there. My pleasure. Thank you. Can you explain the origins uh, of rye for us to start, please?
3: Uh, Well, rye actually started out as a weed, um, mm-hmm. That found its way into harvests of um, of wild uh, and primitive uh, cultivated grains, early wheat uh, and barley, and um, rye. As I said, that you know, about 15,000 years ago, um, rye seeds were were uh, included. Random rye seeds were included in these troves of, uh, of grain that uh, archaeologists have discovered. Um, then about 12,000 years ago, we went through a, a period of, of severe global cooling uh, that um, archaeologists call the big freeze. And at that time, wheat and barley couldn't survive, and so rye, which is very hardy and can grow in very difficult conditions, became the primary food grain. Hmm.
1: Um, and
3: then when the world warmed up again and about... 1,500 years later, uh, <laughs> rye once again retreated to the shadows.
1: It's so interesting to me because, you know, I believe that we come full circle. I mean, I often joke, like, save your jeans because they'll be back in style. Um, but rye is no doubt experiencing a renaissance. What do you credit it to?
3: Well, I think people are much more conscious of, uh, uh, of, of the food we put in our mouths. For sure. Uh, I think uh, a lot of us are looking for flavor. We're looking for authenticity. We're looking for... Um, connections with our past. Um, also, there are nutritional elements. I think, rye, from from a nutritional perspective, is uh, uh, is considered to be more nutritious. It's certainly higher in fiber uh, and other ingredient and uh, other nutrients than mm-hmm. than wheat. Um, I like it because it takes me back to my own childhood. Yes, and it takes me back to my grandparents and their grandparents.
1: Hmm. And and it does the same for me. I was raised in a Jewish household and a good rye bread was a truly valued thing. Uh, it It is still today. When I travel to New York for business, the one thing my mom asked for when I come back is, can you pick up a rye bread on the way to the airport? I, there's something about good Jewish New York rye and that flavor. There's a beautiful... Like a je ne sais quoi, like you can't put your finger on it because it's it doesn't taste like anything else rye.
3: Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of sweet and spicy with a little touch of bitter, and it's mm. just it's a really complex, interesting flavor. Um, and you know, you brought up uh, you brought up the Jewish rye breads, which which is the stuff that I grew up on also as a kid in Brooklyn. Hmm. Um, and it was actually while I was researching inside the Jewish bakery that uh, I, I got into those rye breads, of course. But more importantly, I, I found uh, accounts, memoirs and various other things of, of the breads that the, the Jewish immigrants brought over from Europe uh, that had disappeared from the bakeries by the time I was a kid in the 40s and 50s. Hmm. And so I started doing research, and I discovered just this, this, this incredible world um, of breads that are, are, you know, widely known and, and considered a very important part of the diet all throughout Europe, but have largely been forgotten in the United States, except for, for ethnic enclaves uh, of Eastern Europeans, Germans, and Poles and Russians and so forth. Sure. And it was, you know, and so the, the Jewish rye breads and the pumpernickels, um, really, for me, uh, when I did Inside the Jewish Bakery, were an end point, but they became a starting point and. Uh, sort of like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz I opened up the door and lo and behold I was no longer in Brooklyn
1: of course and and it makes me think of it makes me salivate more accurately for a corned beef sandwich on rye with Russian dressing and creamy coleslaw and a, a good new pickle right alongside yes it is a rye revolution and we'll talk more with Stanley Ginsburg, the rye baker right after this Welcome back Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with the Rye Baker Stanley Ginsberg. You share a bounty of really beautiful rye breads and recipes for which in the book. And I'd love for you to give us some tips, some guidelines because when baking and baking bread specifically, you can use a multitude of flours, but how does using rye separate itself from those that were more savvy to using?
3: Uh, chemically, rye is, is completely different from wheat. Wheat is based on gluten, which is uh, when, when you add water to wheat flour, a couple of proteins combine to form gluten, which is you know those, those nice stretchy uh, sheets that, that hold the baking gases. Mm-hmm. Rye is a very different animal because it uh, it doesn't have any gluten, gluten-forming capacity. Instead, uh, it's very rich in, in starches, complex carbohydrates that form a, a very sticky viscous gel uh, that holds the baking gasses and so rye doughs are, are extremely sticky uh... but they don't have to be needed uh... because as long as they're they're sufficiently wet the gel forms mm. um... the other thing i would say is that rye is uh, rye doughs are also very susceptible to uh... uh... to degradation because of uh... Of enzymes called amylases that uh... That, ex- that are present in the flour and the amylase enzymes uh, break down the complex carbohydrates. And so if you, if you let a rye dough sit for too long, uh, it will deteriorate and it won't hold the gases. However, hmm. um, acid, the presence of acid, um, inhibits the, the action of the enzymes, which is why so many rye breads are based on sourdough.
1: And that leads me to, because the book was an incredible education for me, your insights, uh, because I always love to learn, taught me something new. Is it best to consider if we want to master rye bread that we should build a rye sour culture as you teach us?
3: I think so. Um, Certainly there are recipes in the book that don't use uh, sourdough cultures. There There are recipes, for instance, that use buttermilk, um, or that use uh, apple cider, or that even use vinegar. Um, but for the vast majority of the breads, um, they are built on, on sourdough. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I would, I would recommend for anybody who's a, you know, who's a reasonably serious baker, I would recommend just keeping a culture in the refrigerator anyway.
1: Yeah, there's something get, wonderful about it, isn't there?
3: Yes, absolutely.
1: <laughs> I want to make um, salty rye rolls and raisin orange rye. Yes. Oh, Yes. So using that sour culture, the raisin orange rye stems from Russia, which I have family roots in, and just that combination of flavor. I, I really love the flavor of rye. So reading through your recipes makes me hungry. Good. <laughs> um, Good. What else can you do with rye bread? I had a, a fascinating conversation with an up-and-coming uh, James Beard-nominated Best chef, in the U.S., out of Brooklyn, ironically, who uh, food and beer uh, is his focus, uses rye bread after it's baked for a multitude of things, like using ground rye bread as a crust for fish yep. or meat, uh, rye croutons, which makes me think of a false salad right away. What else have you, have you done? What else do you make?
3: Oh, there are, there's a, a whole canon of rye cooking, again, in, in uh, Eastern and Central Europe, uh, for instance, uh, are you familiar with kvass?
1: No, tell it is, us. It is,
3: a, it is a fermented beverage that is made out of stale rye bread, and huh. I've made it. I've, you know When I have stale rye bread, sometimes I'll just throw it in, uh, in with water uh, and sugar, boil the thing, add some raisins, add some yeast, let it ferment for a couple of days, and I've got a nice fizzy, mildly alcoholic drink that is extremely common throughout uh, uh, Russia and Eastern Europe.
1: Oh, how fascinating. There is a world of rye out there and you are no doubt contributing to its renaissance. And for that, we thank you. It is a master class in rye. The new cookbook release from Stanley Ginsburg entitled The Rye Baker, classic breads from Europe and America. Everything from raisin scones to black bread to even a sauerkraut bread and an apple cider rye. The rye baker is a true baker's companion and really a Fascinating read and a wonderful lesson to elevate your culinary prowess. So, do check it out. It's called The Rye Baker, the author Stanley Ginsburg. Stanley, a pleasure to have you. Thank you again. Thank you so much. As the delicious conversation continues, we're sharing culinary passion in your radio, and there's more right after this. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio, and may the best team win. As football season kicks off, there is crazy football fun planned, and of course, a tailgating menu to pour over. But no matter whether your team wins or loses, Dana Falk says that you can still guarantee great food and drink. Dana is the daughter of legendary sports agent David Falk. She grew up around professional athletes, and she plans a pretty fantastic parking lot party. The recipes are all compiled in her first cookbook release, entitled The Hungry Fan's Game Day Cookbook, and Dana is here to plan your game day party. Welcome back. Hi, Dana. Hi
0: there. Thanks for having me back. (laughs) Yes,
1: of course. Okay, tell us about the trends for... The 2016 tailgating season, please, because football is off to a good start.
0: Well, there's there's a couple things that I've seen. One of which makes me very, very happy for the collective waistlines of this country. Yes, um, people genuinely seem to be more and more interested in eating healthier, and that even includes game day, which you know, typically game day for me is sort of my cheat day. But you know, football is played at least four days a week. So, if you're spectating or fangating, as I like to say, that's a lot of cheat days. That's, that's more than half the week. <laughs> that's so, true. very happy to see that people are, are getting more and more interested in not just what they're eating, but the quality of the food that they're putting into their mouth, um, which actually can make a huge difference. And, sort of like on the total flip side, I've also seen probably with the popularity of Instagram and you know, some of the, um, like, BuzzFeed and some of the fun videos that they do, people are really interested in sort of, like, the outrageous, the big, you know, quintuple, you know, stacked burgers or, like, even, like, 20 patties where there's no way in, like, there's literally no way in reality that anybody could actually bite into any one of these sandwiches, but they make them, and then they photograph them, and then they post them. And and so that's, yeah, I guess it's pretty cool. I mean, like, I share pictures like that, too, but... Um, I don't actually you know, serve burgers that are taller than I am.
1: I like the idea that you plan a party no matter where you are, albeit you do tell us in your tailgating tips that the early bird does get the best location when it comes to yeah. tailgating at the game itself. Um, but you're always celebrating both teams. You celebrate the culture of sports the variety of the teams, the fact that there are always people on both sides. And I think that themed aspect is a really fun way to approach a sports-based party.
0: Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I got started making recipes for both the home and away teams, um, <laughs> and people really liked it. And, you know, there's always a certain amount of rivalry on on game day, whether or not it's, you know, an in-conference game or it's really a rival. There's always going to be, like, us versus them, but it's just all about who the us is. Like, for some people, us is the home team, and for some people, us is the away team. So, um, you know, the other part to that is that we have such a big country, and as you travel around the country, you will find that food cultures change. Um, and, And I just think that's really awesome and fun. And so in the effort to sort of celebrate what makes us different, but also what we all share, I just like making recipes from from both teams from generally, like, different parts of the country to sort of give your flavor, or I say give your taste buds a little bit of, like, a flavor festival.
1: Definitely. So, okay, let, let's have a flavor fest ourselves, can we, in your radio, <laughs> um, because you don't have to be from Wisconsin or a Badgers fan to love cheese curds. And in the food world, we are seeing the growth of cheese curd outside of just the cheese-loving states, and i happen to love the the what is still a novelty of it and you make a wisconsin style fried cheese curd as sort of the um throwback version of a mozzarella stick, right? Right. The recipes are terrific, Dana. Congratulations. I know it's your first cookbook release. I know you are a diehard fan and there are so many hungry fans that are um, following suit. And so I'm delighted that you were here to share the Hungry Fans Game Day Cookbook just released. Featuring all of Dana's fan-gating tips, there's planning menus and uh, snack packing and some of the top stadium eats across the country, along with some team trivia and Dana's memories of growing up on the sidelines as well. So do check it out. The Hungry Fans Game Day Cookbook is available now. It's an all-access pass to the ultimate game day experience, and you can follow Dana's Fan Gating Escapades at HungryFan.com. Dana, I'll talk to you soon. May your team win this season.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: And so that brings us to the end of another hour of gastronomic inspiration. I hope that you'll join me every Sunday throughout the season for fall dinner inspiration And that you will cook more confidently from the knowledge gained from this show. I'm all about cooking and entertaining from a chef's point of view, and I'm sure there's a few things you won't want to miss at chefjamie.com, so please check it out. I'll leave you with my last bite for this week it's another breakfast treat. A quick fix, actually, and I love it. And with grapefruit season approaching as the uh, weather turns cooler, it's a wonderful way to savor citrus. It's a broiled grapefruit with shredded coconut, a three-ingredient breakfast recipe that will make your day. All you do is preheat your broiler and, Uh, and put the oven rack at the top rung, or you can pull out your kitchen blowtorch. You cut a grapefruit in half, you run your knife around the edge so that you separate the flesh from the pith, and then you make cuts on both sides of every grapefruit segment, which makes it much easier to eat, right? Then I spread a tablespoon of honey on the top of the grapefruit, and I put it on a baking sheet or in an oven-safe pan, and I broil it for about three to five minutes until the edges are browned. Uh, Of course, you could use your blowtorch to caramelize the grapefruit all over. Then you let the grapefruit cool for just a minute. You sprinkle with the shredded coconut on top and you eat, and oh, breakfast is delightful. I will share my broiled grapefruit with shredded coconut on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I will meet you here next Sunday. There will be more fabulous food in your radio. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off, and I hope you continue to eat well.